Hey, I'm so glad that you're here for the second week of our uh, message series. We're talking about some misconceptions that people here have about faith, about the Bible, about big concepts. We're calling it dumb things smart Christians believe. Just so we're clear, uh, we're talking about the ideas are dumb, not Christians are dumb. That's why it's called dumb things, but smart Christians. And they're things that are easily believable because they tend to come up in normal life, normal life. Now, when you came in the building today, you may not have seen it, but out there on the front of our building, there's a big logo over the front door. You may have seen that. There's a kind of a digital sign. There's Four Corners Church. And then the other end of our building, down near our kids' wings, there are the, uh, the three words, real love now, real love now. That's a, a slogan, if you will, but really that's the heartbeat of this place. We want everybody to experience real love right now in this place. You can invite your friends. You can take a risk to invite your family and friends to this place because unlike any church I've ever been a part of, we really do embrace people right where they are and we don't expect anything from them. We just want them to come and consider what Jesus would like to do in their lives and we'll accept them right where they are. But that first word, real for us, is a big word. It's a big word because around here, more than trying to be cool, more than trying to be hip or relevant, what we want to do is just be real. So I want to start with kind of a real story that speaks specifically to our topic today. So many of you know that uh, Father's Day a year and a half ago, um, my mother passed away. And uh, that that was a a life-changing event in our family. It has had a big impact on me. It crops up from time to time, and I can be incredibly sad about that. But there was a particular moment um, as we were kind of nearing her passing. It wasn't a complete surprise. She had struggled on and off with cancer for 20 years. Um, there, there was a particular moment in that kind of story that was unfolding in front of us where um, something happened as it relates to our topic today that just frustrates me uh, as a pastor. And so when I do the teaching today, um, this story is in the back of my mind. I'm going to tell it to you in a second. And, and I'm telling it to you because when we're trying to live out real love now as a church, as a congregation, as a staff, as participants in this group of people, very imperfect group of people that God has planted right here in North Cincinnati to reach this area. This is one of those things that if we don't get it right, the implications are large, right? They're, they're huge, and they're big in your life as well. So, so here, here's what happened. My, my mom and dad are part of a, a church that believes in prayer very much like we do. And so uh, there were some very loving and concerned people who have great hearts, big hearts, not a malicious bone in their body, knew that my mom was ill. And so this man had spent a lot of time praying for my mom in, in it, at, at home and just uh, really loved them. And so uh, after a particular intense time of prayer, he goes up to my mom and he says to my mom these words. He says, um, God has impressed me to tell you that if you will claim by faith that you're healed, God will heal you. Now, of course, my mom knows this guy. There's a lot of relationship history there. There's a lot of trust. And he said the words that she really, really wanted to hear, of course. Everybody wants to hear those kinds of words when you're going through trouble. That if you have enough faith, then everything's going to be okay. Well, the challenge with that is, is, of course, it was just a couple months later that she wasn't okay. See, there's this idea in Christianity that if you have enough faith, it can fix anything. To have the right kind of faith, the right quality of faith, or the right quantity of faith, quality and quantity, then all your problems in life will be fine. All your problems can go away. 
Now, our last message series, we talked about having unshakable faith. And we've explored all around this topic today. But right now, I want to go to the heart of what's one of, the, one of the biggest misconceptions in Christianity. And you don't have to go very far to hear this. You can turn on your television any day of the week, 24-7, go to one of those Christian stations, and you can hear some version of this idea. You have enough faith, the right quantity or the right quality of faith, and you can fix any problem in your life. Now, that's a misconception. It's not biblically accurate. It doesn't hold water. And if you've lived any length of time at all, you know that that isn't true. So what we're going to do, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to go to the Scriptures. We're going to see kind of where this comes from, why we got into this place where people easily believe if you have enough faith the right quantity or quality, you can fix any problem in life. We're, we're going to look at, like, scripturally where they pull that from because, you know, an incorrect reading, an incorrect application of some biblical truth. So here's the truth. We incorrectly apply it. We lay, over, lay it over with false assumptions, with broken hopes. We lay, we lay our, our Bible over with those things, and it's real easy to come to some of these conclusions. So the Bible... I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible has a, a book called Hebrew. The Bible's not one book. It's 66 books written by some 30 different authors over a couple thousand year period of time. So individual pieces of literature. And one of the rich gems of literature in our New Testament is the book of Hebrews. We're not really sure who authored Hebrews. All we know is that early on, followers of Jesus had this piece of literature addressed to the Hebrew people who were turning to faith in Jesus, the children of Israel who were turning to faith in Jesus, not Roman believers, not Greek believers, but Jewish believers who were turning to faith in Jesus. And so this author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this this letter, if you will, to them explaining how powerful Jesus is in light of their history and heritage as Jewish people. And this letter was seen as so insightful and precious that it was preserved and circulated. And when early on people began to gather these letters together, it's been a part of that corpus of material we now call the New Testament. Well, the book of Hebrews is a powerful book. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is a particularly powerful, powerful passage. So if you, if you have a Bible and would like to go ahead and go there, we're going to spend some time in it. If you don't have one, maybe you turn on your phone and go to it, or if not, you'll go to the screens when we get there. I want to, in just a few moments, take you to Hebrews 11, but first we're going to explore this question. And so what is faith? What is faith anyway? I mean, what is it? <laughs> what, what are we talking about? And here's part of the challenge. Here's how we kind of get into the mess that it makes it easy to believe, and in some Christian circles, you'll hear even, faith can fix anything. The problem is, is that this word is complex. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It can be applied in a hundred different ways in a hundred different scenarios. It's a layered word, multiple meanings. And it's important. It's right central to the Christian faith. This idea of faith is central to the Christian faith. So what are we talking about when we talk about faith? Are we talking about just believing that something's true? Are we talking about believing in an opportunity that we hope to experience? So much belief, the right quality of belief, so that that thing we hope to have happen occurs? Are we talking about, maybe to use pop psychology for just a moment, are we, are we talking about just positive thinking? 
if for a moment, if you can imagine that I was Tony Robbins, just for a second, wouldn't that be kind of cool? Um, if I, you guys don't know who Tony Robbins is. Anyway, he's a positive confession kind of motivational speaker. Is, is that what faith is? Positive confession. I say the right things over time. Is it the secret? This is how Oprah and her friends rallied around the idea of positive confession. The secret being, if you think it long enough and sincerely enough and you filter out all the other negative thoughts, you will attract that very thing that you hope for. If you have clarity of thought enough, that's the secret according to that ilk of positive thinking. Is is that what faith is? And I think about Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter. Because in this chapter, over 20 times the word faith is used. It's also called the, the roll call of faith because there's a lot of people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 who lived lives of faith. And they're held up for us as an example. So if we're going to explore the idea of what faith really is, because it's so important, then maybe we should start here with this chapter. So here's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says. And it's going to clear it up in one sentence for us. Here's what it says. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Crystal clear, right? Shortest message in Four Corners history, right? Yeah. See, this chapter begins with a very powerful statement. We're actually going to unpack it. But even in reading that sentence, which is full of truth, which is accurate, it doesn't necessarily clear up for us the issue of what faith is and how it works and what's going on and how do I leverage it and how do I get what I need. And if I'm going through a problem, what's the role of faith in my life? We're fortunate in America today, unlike any other time in history, because while the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, the common language of common people called Koine Greek as opposed to classical Greek, they're related to each other, but educated people, learned people, used classical Greek in their writing, and everybody else kind of spoke a derivative language, Koine Greek. It's kind of like, you know, if you're in Cincinnati and you travel down to Kentucky, all right? It's just, it's a... A little slam there. You got that right? Sorry. Um, but, you know, you get the idea. Uh, you get what I'm saying, right? So it's Koine Greek, common Greek, and it's written for everyday people. So the point of the Bible, originally written, was so that people could read it and understand it. The problem was that it was a long time ago in a different language and a different culture. And so interpreters pull this stuff. They try to understand the culture in which a thing was written so that words then have context, culturally speaking, And in America today, we're very fortunate because we have not just one attempt at this, like 1611 when King James uh, brought together a group of scholars to do it. We we actually now have multiples. And sometimes we actually can get greater clarity by looking at other English translations that are true to the original Greek text. This this disconcerts a few people because it seems like it brings confusion, but actually, if you look at them in total, it actually brings clarity, usually speaking, all right? So I'm going to read for you the same verse from a slightly different translation. The verse I read was the NIV. Here's the New Living Translation. Not that one's better than another, but trying to be true to the original meaning, here's what the New Living Translation says. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen, and it gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So here's our first point. 
for just getting clarity as we kind of drill down on this misconception that if you have enough faith, the right quantity or quality, then it'll fix anything. Here's our first idea. That Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the faith chapter, the roll call of faith, is not a definition of what faith is, pure and simple. What it really does is it describes for us what faith does. What does faith accomplish? So let's, let's just kind of peel back. Guys, if you go back one screen, the New Living Translation. Faith is the evidence that what we hope for will happen. Right? There's the introductory clause. Here's the key idea. But faith gives us assurance about what we cannot see. Now, this is the first little piece for us beginning to get clarity. Faith has to do with seen and unseen things. Faith has something to do with confidence. And faith, when appropriately understood, applied, appropriated, grabbed hold of, it gives us assurance about things we can't see. Now, this isn't clear of everything because right now, a lot of you, and like me, we're facing things that we can't see. We can't see the future, how things are going to work out. Some of us right now are in the middle of physical illnesses in our body, in our own bodies or people we love, and we're scared to death because we can't see exactly how it all may shake out. So faith speaks to that. Some of us are in relational stuff, and we're hopeful and praying, but it's painful right now, and we're not sure how it's all going to work out. And faith speaks to that. We got financial stuff. Faith speaks to that. So faith is a powerful term for followers of Jesus, a powerful concept, because it somehow speaks where we are about the things that have grabbed our attention, our concerns. So it's something we need to understand, something we need to press into. So let me give us a kind of a working definition. All right? So faith is the assurance that God will indeed do that which God has promised to do. Now this is where we begin to get greater clarity. Faith is the assurance that God will indeed do that which God has promised to do. God will do, but it's dependent upon what he has promised he would do. And this is what begins to give us the greatest clarity in this concept, this confusion, that faith, the right quantity or quality of faith will fix anything. Because God hasn't promised to do everything. But what God has promised to do, faith, it's confidence that he will do that thing. This is the first filter for understanding the kind of healthy biblical faith that we talked about last series. The kind of faith that gives you an unshakable foundation. That stands through the storms. That though you had hoped for something, maybe you got it, maybe you didn't. That event itself doesn't wreck you to the core. Faith is confidence that God will do what he said he would do. In, in this comment, in this statement, what we're talking about is the character of God, that God is trustworthy. So it begins to beg the question, really, since the emphasis is upon the last part of that sentence, what has God promised to do? What has God promised to do when you're facing an illness or somebody you love is? What has God promised to do in a relational mess? What has God promised to do relating to last week when there's problems with parents and kids? What has God promised to do in financial situations? Determining what God has promised 
is essential to understanding faith. It's the first step. I need faith in this place. There are things I can't see that have me worried. I want confidence here. Let's get a little bit more clarity for just a second about, by, by talking about what faith isn't. Here's what faith isn't. Faith is not intellectual or emotional self-control that when properly harnessed can fix outcomes. Contra, Tony Robbins, positive thinking, although, let's be honest, the scripture affirms that positive thinking tends to trump negative thinking all day long. It's true. It's connected to our subject. But that's not the kind of biblical faith that the Bible calls us to. Contra Eckhart Tolle, in the secret, we just think the thing and what we think about over time, that's what we attract. So if we think positively, we think beautiful, we think financially abund- financial abundance, then we will attract beautifully uh, apportioned, financially abundant people into our lives and opportunities. That's, that's not what this is saying. So it's not just an intellectual or an emotional self-control, although most of us could benefit from a little intellectual and emotional self-control when we're facing challenges in our life. I know I could. Some of you are like me. You're, you're wired to like see the worst. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not a pessimist. You understand. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a realist, right? You know that, right? You know the difference between a, a realist and a pessimist? If you're a pessimist, you call yourself a realist. Everybody else calls you a pessimist. That's the only thing that is different between a pessimist and a realist. That's just the way it goes. On the other hand, I can be an incredible optimist when I really, really hope something happens. So I'm confused. (laughs) But I'm not the only one. That's why you can make a lot of money as an evangelist on television telling people, have enough faith, you get from God what you want from God. But that kind of faith over time leaves us empty. So, what we have to do is compare kind of a couple of ideas. Are we calling people to have faith in faith or faith in God? See, this, this assumption, this myth that the right kind of faith, the right quality of faith, the right quantity of faith can fix every problem in your life, what we're really asking people to do is have faith in faith. That if you could do faith right, you get your desired outcome. What the Bible calls us to do is not have faith in the outcome, but have faith in the person. It's not a desired experience, but it's a person. It's a personal relationship with a God who is trustworthy. Faith in faith says you do the right things, you get the right outcomes. And in some Christian circles, if we can just be honest... If you don't get the right outcomes, then of course the problem was what? Your faith. This is the challenge I had with that well-meaning, good-hearted, not an evil bone in his body gentleman who spoke to my mom and said, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Because he had an automatic out, didn't he? What I wanted to say, and I didn't get a chance because I wasn't there, I heard about it later. What I wanted to say to him was, um, let's step outside behind the woodshed. But I didn't say that. I, what I said was, what, what I said to the person who was telling you the story, I said, here's what I would like to say to that guy. <clears throat> Why don't you have enough faith to get my mom healed? And then if she's not healed, it's your fault. 
I mean, if it's just about the kind of quality or quality of faith, why does it have to be hers? Why can't it be yours? If that's really the secret. Now, I have enough training and exposure to Scripture to know that that was never the secret. And he didn't mean anything about it. And it was just an emotional thing. He had a bit of an emotional reaction. But there is serious maturing deficiencies that occur in your spiritual faith if you and I believe we just have the right quantity or quality, we get everything we want. Because see, here's the thing. Number two, not only is it not faith in faith, but faith in God. It's, faith is not what we do. It's about, what, it's about God and what God does. It's not what we do alone. It's primarily about what God does. So it's not faith in faith, it's faith in God. And it's not faith in what we do and how we think and how we appropriately intellectually discipline ourselves, although that's a helpful thing for many of us. It's really about God and what God does. So in Christianity, the thing I'm trying to fight against right now, and whether you know the term or not, let me just give it to you, is this concept of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The idea that you come to Jesus... And he makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. However, the truth is, when you come to Jesus, here's something I've observed. And you really follow him. You tend to get a little healthier. You do. Because you start following the way God wired the world to work. You tend to get a little wiser because you begin to trade your own wisdom for the wisdom of God. And if you follow him on money, guess what tends to happen? If you really take God's word seriously, it tends to... But it's not a one-to-one equation. And so some people with sincere and honest hearts, they promise people that if you just commit your life to Jesus, say these words, believe these things, then you're elevated to a plane where problems don't touch you. But that's not real. Hey, it's relevant, isn't it? It's relevant because all of us have problems. But it's not real, and it's not real faith. It's not really what the Bible calls us to. So how did we get ourselves in this mess? How did we get there? Let me me give you three English words as we continue to work towards clarity on what faith is. So here's our first word. The word is faith itself. I've already talked about how complex this could be. What we mean often by faith is this confidence, which is the opposite of fear and doubt. We kind of really get that from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which we're going to come back to in just a moment. Here's another word just as we're trying to get clarity. The word belief. It, it's this idea of intellectual assent because we think something is true. Remember John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. So all over America and in churches, people say, you know, you just believe that Jesus is the Son of God, everything's fine. And here's another word, trust, which is like the accompanying actions. It's our response to faith and belief. So John 14.1 talks about this, about putting our trust in God. I've, I've, on this chair, trying to help us get clarity of faith, on this stage, I've used the metaphor of a chair that I can have confidence. I can believe the chair exists. I can have confidence it will hold me, but I don't trust it till I actually put my weight on the chair. Three different words. Can I tell you the challenge? In the Bible, all three of these words come from the exact same Greek word. Three English words to get to the heart of one Greek word. The Greek word is pistis. One, so 20 plus times 
in Hebrews 11, 400 and something times in our New Testament, this word or it's, uh, uh, some derivative of this word is used. And it's translated either faith, belief, or trust. But in Koine Greek, it's the same idea. Because it's complex. It's multi-layered. In English, we have a harder time with this. So translators trying to get to the heart of a passage, they either pull the word faith, confidence without doubt, or belief, intellectual assent, or trust, actions that go along if you had this belief. But the faith the Bible calls us to is really just, well, it includes all of those things. Every one of them. Not an either or, but a both and. So in Scripture, the Bible knows no separation between faith, belief, and trust as we use it in English. There is no faith in Christ that says, I simply believe he exists and I'm done. Now, I didn't make that one up. That's the Bible because there's this discussion about belief in the Bible. And at some point, at some point, Jesus looks at the people he's talking and says, you know, even the devils believe in God. They intellectually assent that he exists, but that, that doesn't accomplish anything for them. So it's more than that. So it's more than just believing that he exists. It includes that. Our faith has to include that. Let's talk a little bit about what faith can and can't do. So faith has more to do with our actions than just our feelings. The kind of faith that we're talking about pulls us towards actions and not just feelings. It includes feelings and intellect and hope and confidence. But then it's largely the actions that follow out of it. In fact, Scripture ridicules an actionless faith. The book of James in our Bible talks about having faith without works. Like somehow you can just believe something, but if you don't do the works that follow out of that belief, then really your faith is dead. It's, it's not real. It's not going to accomplish anything. So back to Hebrews chapter 11 to just get greater clarity. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks with that sentence, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But then he goes on to tell incredible stories. And over 20 times, pistos is used. And he talks, for instance, about Abel, who believed God and made a good sacrifice. His brother Cain didn't like it. Talks about Noah, who believed God and built an ark, even though it had never rained. Talks about Abraham, who believed God and began to walk towards a city he had not built, claiming the promise that God had. Sarah, his wife, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab, all of these people are commended for their faith, which included their belief, their hope, but the actions that flowed out of that belief and hope. They were commended for the faith. And guess what happened to every one of them? They got exactly what they were wishing for. So it would be real easy to stop halfway through Hebrews chapter 11 and say, if you have the kind of faith of Moses, Rahab, Joseph, Isaac, Abraham, guess what happens? You get everything you hope to get from God, like in life right now, here and there. And the problem is, we talked about this last week, that Scripture interprets Scripture, and you have to put Scripture in context. If you quit reading Hebrews chapter 11, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want to make it say, but... If you read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, especially down past verse 29, up to verse 29, here's what it says. So Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 29, here's what it says. The kingdoms were won, lions were muzzled, flames were quenched, 
enemies were rooted and the dead were raised. Woohoo! Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 29. We get everything we want from God. We have the right quantity and quality of faith. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 through 39, just continuing the thought. Some of these heroes of the faith, here's what happened to them. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for the faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. See, God doesn't promise to fix all of our problems. That's not what he promised. But he does promise to fix our biggest problem. We're called to have faith in him and his character, not in our desired outcome. And the biggest work of God that he does in this world, that a faith in him accomplishes in us, is he deals with our biggest problem. Do you know what that is? It's the problem of our separation from our creator. It's the problem of our aloneness in this world. Our complete and utter inability to reconnect with our Heavenly Father. But faith in Jesus, that John 3.16 is trying to get at, if you believe in Him. If you believe in what God has said. Paul writes it this way, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that you'll be saved. They're all trying to get us to this understanding that God has promised that in Christ we can have a relationship with the Father, which means we will never be alone We'll never be abandoned by him. But that is the kind of faith that passes beyond just mentally sent, doesn't just affect the emotions, but it's the kind of faith that lingers no matter what we're facing. So that, whether like Abraham, you get the son at 100 years old, or, or, or like Rahab, who in just a moment has faith and God blesses her and her offering and brings her into the family and her life is radically changed. Or like the ones it's mentioning here. The prophet Isaiah saw it in half because he wouldn't relent in prophesying words people didn't want to hear. And those who were scorched, whether it happens, you get what you want or you don't, here's the whole point of faith, biblically speaking. I said God has said he would connect us to him in a way that we are never alone, and no matter what we go through, that is rock solid. That everything he has promised you and me about a relationship, about what that looks like, we can literally trust our lives to him. We can, in the metaphor of the chair I referenced earlier, not just believe it exists, and that believe that it would hold us, and have emotional hope that it would hold us, we can actually afford to sit in it and let that God carry us all the way through. I would love to tell you, and it's easier to build a church to say, come and God will fix all your problems. And I believe there's a hint of truth in that. But he's promised to fix our biggest problem. And from that fixing of our biggest problem, it, it impacts and affects every other problem we have. So that's why the, reader of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews at the end of chapter 11 continues with chapter 12 and writes these words, therefore... 
since we have a, such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all these people I've talked about in chapter 11, for you and me, here's what our faith should look like. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us because we have this faith, like them, those who got what they wanted and those who didn't, those who stuck with God, those who banked on God, God's work, God's ability to save in their lives. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And now we move to just the raw concept of faith, to the idea of faithfulness. Mine and your faith is meant to produce in us a faithfulness. Not just an emotion that things are going to get better. Not just a hope for what we want. But a faithfulness in clinging to God. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Why can we keep our eyes on him? Because he's trustworthy. Everything he said he would do, he will. He is the source and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that lay before him, if there was ever one who had enough faith, it was him. For the joy that was before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. This is the practical working out of faith. So we, as followers of Jesus, are called to live a life that radiates faithfulness. Not just an emotion of faith, not just a hope of faith. And of course, most of us could benefit from a positive outlook from time to time. If you don't believe me, ask your spouse if you're positive enough in the middle of challenges. Just ask them. If they say you're not, then you probably could benefit from listening to some Tony Robbins and Oprah. But at the end of the day, the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to is the kind of faith that causes us to put our dependence upon Him and not just our outcome. As a pastor, you know what? breaks my heart about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That God's there to give you everything you want. You can rise above all your problems here in this life. Is that when people try it and they find it's hollow, then their faith is wrecked. But the truth is, the faith they were banking on was no faith that the Bible called them to. Have you ever seen, like, really good wax fruit? I mean, really good wax fruit. Here's how you know wax fruit, wax fruit is like really high quality. It has teeth marks in it because somebody thought it was real. That's how you know. You ever seen like really good? It seems to promise so much. It seems to offer nourishment. But at the end of the day, it was hollow, empty, void of nourishment. So living a life of faith... It's not really a skill we master. Here, here, here's the key for us. Our one point. It's a map we follow. I put my trust in God. I try to figure out what he said. And I believe it hook, line, and sinker. So the stuff he says about our relationship with him and our dependence on him, and that it's not based on works we do, I cast myself completely and utterly upon that thing as if it's wholly true. When he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that you really are never alone when I'm feeling alone. I cast myself fully upon what he said and I take him at his word. When he says his plans for you are good and not for evil, 
And though he was talking to the nation of Israel who were going through a very difficult time, we can appropriate that as New Testament believers and children of God and believe that God's heart for us, no matter what we're going through, is always good. And there's a redemption in this somewhere, in this life or in the life to come. Every pain we've experienced, we can have confidence that God has gone through it because the writer of Hebrew tells us that we have a high priest who's been touched with everything we've gone through. And we can have confidence in him, and that will last. But confidence in our outcome, confidence in our hope, faith in faith, uh, that's wax fruit. And as a pastor, my hope is, is that we would afford and force ourselves to be real with life and the Scripture and grow in our faith and let that faith, that hope we have, create for us a map Faithful following. Faithful following. So that when our kids are great, like we hoped last week, we give God glory. And when they're not, we find our comfort in Him. And when the doctor's report is great, we thank God for His provision and healing. And when it's not, we have confidence in Him. And when you get the job after you lost the job, we're grateful and we're full of gratitude for our God who provides. And when we don't, we find our rest and confidence in Him. Is this harder? Yes, it's much easier to do the other until real life hits. So, no, faith does not fix everything. But faith deals with our biggest problem, sin, and faith gives us a guy to rely on in, in, in our Heavenly Father, And faith becomes for us a roadmap towards faithful relationship with God who can be fully dependent upon. So let's do this. Let's take out our Connect cards and take a few steps together as a congregation. I talked about God fixing our greatest problem through our faith in Him, and that's the problem of sin and our separation. I want to give you a chance right now by checking Next Step A on your Connect card to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Around here, here's the language we use. We say, ask God to be your Savior, that is, forgive your sin, and to make Him the Lord of your life. This gets to the heart of what I'm talking about today, that He would be the leader and you're the follower, that you trust Him, you have confidence in Him, you let Him set the goal, the agenda, and then your faith becomes a map towards following Him. If you want to do that right now, I ask you to check next step A and put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of our service. We want to communicate with you via email, about what it means to be in a relationship with God. And in a moment when I pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to use your own words. There's no magic in the words. And just look to God and say, God, I want to trust you with my life, with my soul, with my eternity. Would you forgive my sin? Would you become the leader of my life? How about next step B? You want to get baptized? We're going to celebrate that next service in in a remarkable young man's life who's a big part of serving around here already. If you want to get your questions answered to get baptized, check the box. And we'll communicate with you again via email, get you set up for that. Or here's next step C. So listen, I'm dealing with real life stuff in this message series that relates to faith. Some of us have friends who could benefit from this. So here's next step C. I'm going to invite a friend to come with me for one of the next few weeks of our Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe message series. See, I, I think if we'll be real with them and if we'll deal honestly and really with God's word, I think it can change people's lives. I'm banking on that. 
I'm banking on that. So why don't you do this? Invest in somebody. Here's next step D. I wonder if anybody would, would begin praying about our Christmas offering that's coming up. We're going to talk about it next week hardcore, but bottom line is we always invest here in our church. I'm going to share with you some exciting things. I'm going to talk about how God's going to use this church to invest right outside these walls and literally change the trajectory of people's lives. That's near. And we're going to talk about what God has done and what he's going to do in India for us in 2015. A little, still a preview, but as a way of being ready for that, would you start praying about that this week? And if you check the box, I'll send you a little advanced hint of kind of where we're going in email this week, all right? But here's next step E. I'm going to take a few moments after our service to investigate how I might help out with Orphan Sundays. Uh, Orphan Sunday. I don't know if you know this or not, but the number, of, orf- uh, the number of, of children in foster care in the United States and the number of churches in the United States is about the same. If, if, if one person in every church in America would give themselves to the widowed, the informed, the orphan, in this case, to the f- child who needs fostered, uh, the, the problem of foster children in the United States would be wiped out literally in a, in a couple weeks. I don't know all that God would have us do, but I know he said that our real religion, real pure religion, it's the kind that leans, leans into the widow and the fatherless. So this church has a big, big heart for kids. So when you leave service today, right out through these doors, you can walk around and see how people in this church, how this church has made a difference in the life of orphans. And that's what we're ramping up for as we approach the Christmas season. Let's pray about these things to our great and dependable Heavenly Father. You ready? Dear God, I want to take a moment and say thank you. I want to say thank you that you did not give us hollow fruit. You didn't call us to an unrealistic standard that if we just have enough faith, everything will be great. No, instead you've called us to have a relationship with a God who is trustworthy. With a God upon whom we can depend no matter what we're facing. God, I pray that you would grow the faith of this congregation and the fruit of that would be our faithfulness. Now God, for everybody going through stuff, challenges right now, God, I pray that they would discover the faithful God on a level they have not yet known Him. And their faith would become a roadmap towards their Heavenly Father. I pray for those that are deciding, Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. God, and I pray for every orphan child around this world. Would you give this church incredible ability to minister to those you put in front of us so that we can bring glory to you and help to them. We pray in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.